0: I ask you to turn, please, in your Bible to Psalm 51, where today we're going to celebrate what you are by God's design and so how we relate to God. Psalm 51, David's great prayer of confession and restoration, which we've been spending a little bit of time meditating on together. Today we're saying that Psalm 51, David's prayer for restoration is personal. It's very personal. Last time we looked at Psalm 32, which is a companion psalm in its theme by David, a companion to this one. And it says, if I I pretend like I haven't sinned, if I pretend like my sin isn't real, if I lie to myself, then I languish. I waste away. And God causes that, and He makes me come to the truth. But the truth sets me free, and when I confess my sin, I find joy. How happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, whose iniquities aren't counted against him, imputed to him. In the New American Standard, in Psalm 51, David begins with a request on the basis of God's character, and it summarizes everything he says. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Summary, be gracious to me because of your character. Specific need, blot out my transgressions. I've got a sin problem and you can solve it and I can't. And this is the attitude of the human being rightly adjusted to the truth about God's righteousness and our sin. And we're supposed to feel wrong about sin and we're supposed to feel needy about restoration. And if we do feel that way, we're rightly adjusted. And if we don't feel that way, we're approaching something like Christian sociopathy or something where we're not we're not sensitive to the problem of sin and we're therefore arrogant that's a problem it's a sin problem and you it's recursive where i'm arrogant about not being arrogant i'm sinful about not being sinful when i am sinful and it becomes this almost tumor of soul where i just keep lying, and I don't break free. But God's grace, God's grace frees me. God's grace sets me free. Why do I say we're celebrating what you are and that it's personal? Well, this is the thing. Under the sun, in the frame of life that you and I are living in, the only personal beings that we encounter are other humans. I'm not saying that angels don't show up sometimes when we have dinner and stuff as Abraham did. To entertaining angels unawares. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying in general in the overwhelming majority of your interactions, personal beings that you encounter are other humans. And the reason we're personal beings with the ability to reason, the ability to be self-aware with volition, accountable, responsible volition, not acting on instinct like the squirrels. The four-legged kind. But the reason That it's important that your personal being is that God is a personal being as well. God is one God in three persons, and the language of personhood originates in church history with the question of the relationship of the Father, Son, and Spirit. Tertullian, I believe, was the one that gave us this idea of person, one of the great lexicographers or, or terminology makers for the church in church history. He gave us trinity, triunity. He gave us person as a way to understand that we're talking about one being who exists eternally as three persons. And that personhood, that personal existence is something that for God has existed from eternity past. And when you start thinking about God as a personal being, just think about that for a second. God as a personal being. It shuts down any idea of God as an impersonal, impersonal force where there's, there's a recognition of God's omnipotence and fate, God's sovereignty in, in and a kind of a character of sovereignty and the concept of fate, but not a personal being who cares about you, who has you in mind, who had a design and intention to what he would do with you now and in eternity. And so when you start thinking about God as personal, it's one of these great contact points, one of these great connection points we have between Him. Now, infinite personal, infinite tri-personal being, Three persons who are one God eternally from eternity past into eternity future. But you and your finite personhood are able to connect to God in the sense of personal relation, personal interaction. And that word person is so important theologically, I don't tend to use it in a colloquial way. I don't talk about personal love or impersonal love. I don't do that because the word person to me is taken as a reflection of what persons do. Personal would be done by persons. And so I want to emphasize the nature of God as, as person, three persons. You are a person. God is, per- so what are you talking about? I'm saying we don't think about what we are. All we pretty much do is we kind of respond and react to circumstances. We might make our plans, but we're not thinking about the big picture very often of what we are and what we're for. Until we go to the Bible and then we go, oh yeah, that's what we are and that's what we're for. This person, David, that wrote this 3,000 years ago, experienced these things. And in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these things so that we would worship God and know him personally. And we would have a relationship with him in God's way. And let me talk about protocol for a second. The personal God with whom we must deal, who has preferences and wants things done his way, and in sovereignty and omnipotence can get everything he wants. In righteousness, it will only be good, holy, and perfect. In love, it will be infinitely beneficent to those uh, who love him, for example. all right, This personal being with whom we must deal, his protocol is that we walk by faith and not by sight. And if you're like me, the longer you go in this Christian life, the more you strain against that. We walk by faith and not by sight. Well, I've walked by faith today. It was a good day. Thank you, Father. Go to bed, wake up again. We're going to walk by faith today. It's supposed, I contend, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. I want to see. I want to know what his voice sounds like. I want to interact with him in a real-time way. We all want it, and we want it so badly that some cheat. What are the cheats? When somebody says, God said, and he didn't say when Jesus is calling and we put words in his mouth that he did not say, I know it's real popular. It's super popular. Hey, so was the uh, Jabez prayer and stuff. There's lots of things that have been popular, but why are we saying these things that Jesus is attributed to have said? The apostles tell us what Jesus said. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. I mean, Jesus did say that we know that because the apostle John told us, but people cheat. And they say, he said something that he didn't say. This is a common cheat. Sometimes it's from a a sound motive. Like I want to know him. I want to hear his voice and I want to encourage others. So I'll say, this is what he says. But there's a sinister motive too. I don't mean left handed. (laughs) It's very gauche to say sinister in a bad way. But there's a, there's a malevolent reason people do this too, that they put words in God's mouth. And they don't know they're doing it because that tumor of sin, they've kind of covered it over and lied to themselves. And they've constantly made themselves right in their own eyes. And they won't break themselves down and see sin and arrogance and all these self-assertion, these things. And, and, and what they'll do is they'll say, God said, because they want to get their way and they'll blame it on God. And they'll be charismatic. I mean, personality. They'll be very winsome very convincing. They'll speak with such authority and conviction. They couldn't possibly be lying to you, but God didn't say but they want him to have said because they want to get their way. But here's the problem with all of this. The doing of this is putting God as some sort of two dimensional force because you can't see him because you can't hear his voice because you can't get a hug. Right? Jesus said, don't, don't uh, keep holding on to me. I have to go to my father. We want to see him and touch him and talk to him. Peter wants to run into the tomb. John stays outside. He sees that the tomb's empty. Peter's got to run in and, and get inside the tomb. We want the, the physical after the flesh encounter and relationship with him like we have with one another. We want the embrace. Greet one another with a holy kiss, Paul says. There's an embrace. There's the interpersonal connectedness. And we've struggled with this with God because he is not dealing with us this way. And it's his way. It's his protocol. It's his sovereign decision that this is how it is. You're going to walk by faith. But we cheat. people cheat. And my message today is about the personhood of God. He gets to be the one that says, you're going to trust me this way, and I want you to talk to me in your prayer, and I'm going to talk to you in my word, and you need to keep doing that read, pray, repeat is your Christian life. And don't let let my summary, simplistic summary of the Christian life throw you for a second where you're like, well, I'm not gonna try that. Those that actually experience read, pray, repeat as a walk in Christian life, know God better than they could if they merely saw Him with their eyes, if they heard His voice and what it sounded like with their ears, because they're knowing Him as He is the way he's designed us to receive that knowledge, we're persons specially designed by the personal God in his protocol to know him his way. So, so that's why I hate the cheats. I hate the, the over um, you know, speculative God-said stuff. I hate that because we're dealing with a real person. And he has sovereignly said, you're going to get it this way, and it's going to be in the word. There's another cheat My English Bible that I like to read from is the only Bible because it's the one that God has ordained through the King James. Do you know the life of King James? Do you know anything about King James? Not super sanctified. A lot of the scriptures in the Bible he authorized condemned him soundly. And some of his practices would have been capital offenses in Israel. But but the, the cheat is that we're gonna to go to this simple English translation because it's in my language and I like the way it sounds. And we're gonna invent this doctrine of preservation, or I shouldn't say preservation, I say this doctrine of, tr- of transmission from the original languages that were actually inspired by the Pro- in the prophets and, and apostles of the original writers. Uh, and we're gonna transpose this into our English thing and say the Holy Spirit was really driving towards the King James. And so that's the one. And you tell, what about Spanish? Where's the King James of Spanish? There's not. There's not. And and what's the the cheat? It's a mystical overstep that doesn't look at the nature of things as they are. This translation of the Bible is the product of millions of hours of effort and energy and a collaboration between many Bible-believing Christians that were doing their best with the resources and archaeological uh, studies that, that were at their disposal. And the Bible is inspired in time and space and 3,500 years ago, 3,500 year, 3, years ago, yeah, you have this event where God tells Moses, I want you to tell these people who they are and that's the book of Genesis. And he, and he, he gave it to Moses and Moses wrote it in Hebrew. And, and, and it's hard, but it's not that hard. And so we study. What I'm saying as an illustration of the Bible is that we, we have a protocol God's given us. We relate to him his way. And it's with what he said through the apostles and prophets and what, he's, what we say with him in our prayers. And some of you are perhaps more balanced on, I like to talk to him, but I don't like to hear from him. Others of you are like, I like to hear from him, but I don't have much to say to him. And those are both insane. If you like to talk to him, you need to know something to say to him. And it's not about you, it's about him. And the Bible's full of things to say to him, like in Psalm 51. If you like to hear from him, but you don't like to talk to him, well, you've got all this equipment, all this, all this ability that he's given you, this potential to spend in prayer, but you don't use it. You're sitting on all the stockpiles and you're losing the war. You're sitting on all the resources and you're, and you're starving. You've got all the ammunition to send to God in prayer because you've been in His Word, but you don't talk to Him about it. Well, wherever that lands, if that hits you anywhere, then recognize it. We need to make the adjustment. It's a personal relationship. Then David exhibits that for us in Psalm fifty-two or 51, where he's praying for the restoration of fellowship with God because of God's character. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have sinned and done what's evil in your sight, so that you're justified when you speak, blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden part of the part you will make me know wisdom. We've been carefully walking through the Hebrew poetry of this and parallelisms and themes that he's bringing out. I want to refresh with you the concept of the inside coming out, the inside person. God work on the inside. Not make me walk in necessarily uh, proper procedures and behaviors, but work on my heart because that'll be the cause and the, the actions, the activities, the life I live will be the effect. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. That concept of the inner man. In verse 11, you have this shocking statement. Do not send me from your presence and your Holy Spirit do not take from me. We worked through this and we said that the inner, the inside rhyme that he's making is on the presence, the the very presence of God and then the spirit of God that God had given to him to make him an effective king. We also said this is the one that a lot of people will seize on and say, pray for that one, that you don't take the Holy Spirit from me. And we've said that's the one thing in the psalm that especially can't apply to you. Because the endowment ministry of the Spirit of God on the Old Testament saint for just a few here and there, and they're listed in the Bible, is a different thing from what God started to do with you, uh, with us in the church on the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. The Holy Spirit that you, the, the ministry of the Spirit, same person of God, but different ministry that you've received can't be lost because the Apostle Paul says that he has sealed us into the day of redemption. And it says that he has come to abide in our hearts forever and this is something that you get not by your performance but by God's grace when you trusted in Jesus as your Savior you received the Holy Spirit and it doesn't mean you felt super spiritual it means that God has capitalized you, you can check that capitalization out in Ephesians 1:14. he's the earnest of the inheritance you who are an heir because you're in Christ and you're a fellow heir with Christ have the beginnings of the distribution of that inheritance in the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. You can't lose this ministry. So what are you talking about, Pastor Dave, that you can't lose the Holy Spirit? But David prayed not to lose the Holy Spirit. E-N-D-U-E-M-E-N-T. Endument. Endument. Do you know that word? Endument. That is what theologians watching the scriptures closely have called this temporary and revocable work where God could take it away, where he gave the Holy Spirit to a select few in the Bible. Does anybody know? We're not as formal first hour as we are second hour. Does anybody know other people in the Bible that received this endowment ministry of the Spirit? Saul is the first one that we think of because David received the Holy Spirit after the Spirit was taken away from Saul. So it's like the power to be king okay that that God had given but it wasn't just the kings who before the kings Samson the judges uh, were were named to be filled with the Spirit or broken forth upon by the Spirit Salah to come mightily upon your Bible might translate who else Samson's the, the the most amazing one because he is never in the stories of Samson it never seems that he's intentionally doing what he's supposed to be doing but he's doing what he feels like doing. A lot of times for him it's this drama he's made around himself, this soap opera of who, you, who do you like and who are you going with? And, and, uh, and revenge and, and anger results in him doing his job of, of slaying Philistines. But it's very interesting that uh, he's doing what he's doing in God's power, but it doesn't seem that he's volitionally aligned with God's purposes. But he'll go kill him, some Philistines in, 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 uh, in retribution. And it just goes to show that this is a different work that God was doing in them than he's doing in us today. Who else? Who else had the Holy Spirit? I'm sorry? Elijah, okay. these are the spirit of Elijah. Let me have a double portion. Right? So Elijah and Elijah. Who else? Jonah? Does it say Jonah had the spirit? He was a prophet. Okay. 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 How about when Moses says, Lord, I just can't do it. These people are too much for me. And God says, all right, get all the elders, bring them together. And all the elders received the Holy Spirit and they prophesied, but they didn't do it again. And then God says, Moses, you have the spirit. You have what you need to do the work. Associated with Moses was a famous craftsman. He wasn't just a carpenter. He was a finished carpenter. And he wasn't just a finished carpenter. He could do stitching. He could do embroidery. He could do metal work. He could do uh, apparently gem work. What was his name? Bezalel. Bezalel was filled with the Spirit. You're like, so for what purpose? Have you ever read the blueprint instructions for the tabernacle? You need that instruction and the Holy Spirit in a special way. You can do what those instructions tell you to do. We, we try to draw diagrams, and it's, it's very difficult to go from Hebrew written instructions to an, to an accurate d- d- portrayal. You don't want me to do this. It'll be a kludge. It'll be a there I fix it kind of thing. Or no, it'll be a nailed it kind of, you know, what I would come up with from those instructions doing my very best would look like rabbinical uh, uh, dialogue in the Talmud. It would look like all these different possible ways of seeing it. And, but Bezalel nailed it because he's spirit-filled in this sense. This is the endowment. And the word endowment is a great word because in the Old Testament, another word that would be used besides salach to break forth upon someone would be uh, lavash, to clothe. Someone would be clothed with the spirit. And that clothing in Greek is enduo. So some theologian, I don't know who it was, grabbed this idea of the clothing from the Hebrew and then they said it's, we'll use the Greek word, and they called it endowment. The special, very small percentage of the people in the Old Testament had the Holy Spirit for the purpose that God sent them to, to do the work. Now that's something that you have in common with the Old Testament endowment ministry, is that the Holy Spirit is in you for a purpose. And we get that in Luke 24 and Acts chapter 1 especially. And you compare that with Matthew 28 and what Jesus said in that farewell discourse and you find that we have a mission to accomplish and to be God's witnesses the disciples would need the Holy Spirit and the power to do that work. Have you wondered when when are we going to start moving mountains? Where are the greater works than these? I'm not working miracles. Well if someone trusts in Christ as their Savior and receives eternal life and is saved from the lake of fire and God's wrath, and spends eternity as God's child, by God's grace, uh, that's the greatest, the greatest miracle. It's a work of God, and he does it through the gospel, and you not only have to say it, you have to live it in order to say it. You need the Spirit of God to do this, to do this work that he's given you, not only in sharing Christ to a non-believer, but in equipping believers and discipling them. It's Matthew 28, 19 to 20. It's our mission. And I contend in comparison with Luke chapter of 24 and acts one, you and I need the Holy spirit to accomplish that mission. So I would not say to him, don't take your Holy spirit from me. I'd say, I want every manifestation and work of your spirit in me that you want me to have. And let me not quench the spirit. And, um, uh, first that's five 19. Let me not grieve the spirit in Ephesians 430. Let me not lose the filling ministry of the Spirit or help me have, let me have this filling work of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 where the Word of Christ by the Spirit's work is actually saturating me so that it's characterizing my life. So the, the church-age doctrine of the filling of the Spirit is, a, is a, something you can lose. You can lose the filling of the Spirit according to, and not, the, not the indwelling, but the filling of the Spirit because Ephesians 5.18 commands that you be filled by the Spirit. And so if you can lose that one it's not the same as what david's worried about that the holy spirit left saul and never came back and david's saying don't take your holy spirit from me i think like you did saul but 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 in in an applicational sense we don't want the effects of the spirit to cease in us we don't want to quench the work of the spirit we want him to express himself freely we want to be a product of the word of christ richly dwelling within us so god fill me let your spirit work in me. And if I forfeited it, and as much as I have, uh, let me get back into that fellowship and in that place of abiding in Christ where the spirit does his infilling. And the outcome would be joy and willingness. I know your Bible price says restore to me, but it's a hiphil stem, and I got to bring that out. The word to return or turn around is causative in this case, and so God is the one causing the joy to come back. That's an important nuance, I think, in what David says here. Because I want to rejoice, but I'm struggling now. I'm having trouble rejoicing. I'm choosing joy, but I'm not experiencing joy. So God, you bring it. And it's the joy of your salvation. How's God going to do that? I have some suggestions about how he does it, I take a cue from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.4 where he commands joy. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. In our Bible study methods we learn to observe and we're looking for patterns and repetition and various cause-effect structures. When he says rejoice in the Lord always again I say rejoice in Philippians 4.4. Do you see repetition? That guy that said God doesn't repeat himself As a big like surprise of his ideas. God's constantly repeating. So all through the Psalms he's saying the same thing twice. It's it's Hebrew poetry. It's how it does it. God repeats himself. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. So I'm pretty sure that if Paul is saying in an imperative sense I'm responsible to obey the command to rejoice, and he is, then that means we're commanding feelings. We're commanding things like joy, which typically in our culture we don't think can be commanded. And in your experience, perhaps, you can say, ah, I hear what he's saying, but I'm, the doing of it is not in me. I cannot rejoice. I'm under too much weight. I don't feel like it. Whatever's going on in my mood, I have brain chemistry things that I can't describe. I'm not really sure what's going on, but I just don't have it. I want to have it. Nice blue sky, Lord. Praise you for it, not feeling it. And, and that's how we are about this thing. We, we want to feel good. and We say that's joy and there's something to that. But the question I've said is how can God cause to return to me the joy of his salvation? How can I rejoice always? Again, I say rejoice. What will cause it? What will bring it about? Where is it going to come from? And I believe that that little prepositional phrase, in the Lord, is the answer to the riddle of the command to rejoice. I believe the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, what he's revealed to us of himself in the scriptures. I believe a meditation on who he is and what he's done in the Lord. I believe this is supernaturally empowered to make us enjoy God. I think the, the occupation or focus on Jesus Christ is designed for our rejoicing. And I didn't say you feel like focusing on Christ. You don't. When you're when you're don't go by your feelings, they're liars. There's a super highway of interconnectivity between your sinful nature and your feelings. And that's part of the lot that we're in until the resurrection. And I, I know it hurts and it's awful. And so don't your feelings aren't your guide. Do the opposite. Of what the what the Jedi tell the the, the the follow your feelings don't follow your feelings they're lying to you a lot of times we rejoice in wickedness in our feelings we rejoice in sin we rejoice in the darkness we rejoice in the bad things because we feel like it because we're broken and we're waiting for our resurrection happy Halloween Why is Halloween what they call now adult Christmas? Why is it the the cause for all the joy and celebration and merry-making? Why do they love it? Why do they, not you, why do they love it? It's dark. They're drawn to it. There's a darkness in us. We're drawn to it. Don't feed it. Walk in the light as God himself is in the light. Have fellowship with God on the righteousness of his person. Try to do that for Halloween. All right. What, What are we saying? We're saying that... If you focus on Jesus Christ, by God's design, there will be, not because you feel like it, but there will be something happening in you that is not from yourself. And it doesn't come from a pill. And it doesn't come from exercise. And all the things that you and I need to do for our bodies to to manage this decaying plant that we're waiting for the resurrection, this decaying frame. It's beyond that. It's supernatural and it's beyond your experiences or your, I should say, your, your circumstances. It's beyond your economic situation. It's beyond the social circumstance. of They're against me or they're for me. It's easy to rejoice in the Lord when we're rejoicing in our circumstances, but the problem is we're really not rejoicing in the Lord. But Paul says rejoice in the Lord from prison. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I believe that this is how God causes it to happen. I believe this. I think you and I fix our attention on our Savior. We talk to our God in his name. We walk with him. We uh, think about him. We read of him. And we pray about what we've read. I think there comes a joy from this devotion, from this attention. I just said there's work to do. I just said there's work and labor. Or sorry, there's joy in labor. We all know there's work in labor, but there's joy in this labor and God will cause it. Now I didn't say you'll cause joy to arise. I said, you'll choose it. You'll go after it and God will bring it. I want to be steadfast. I want to be the kind of person that can be counted on. I want to be uh, stable and not stable for stability's sake. I want to actually have something to contribute in my stability, right? I want to be a consistent person. But we're not, we fall short. We're not consistently concerned for the other person self-sacrificially as Jesus commands us. We don't pray without ceasing. We're not loving God as we should, we, we, but we want to. Well, I believe that God brings the stability. You trust him, it's your faith. He brings the faithfulness. He puts our feet on a solid rock. He makes you able. So fellowship with God, walking with him, is always in a humility of awareness that it's not about my faithfulness, my integrity, my stability. I'm the kind of person that shows up and everybody's lucky that I'm here. It's not that. It's that God is in me and he's faithful and stable and I can be stabilized in him. So it's a constant dependence. It's an awareness that I'm dependent on him. That's that's John 15. That's the vine metaphor. He's the vine. We're the branches. We abide in him and so he can bear his fruit through us. And the fruit of the Spirit is love and all that goes with it. Moving to verse 13, the consequence of the inner work of God where I get to keep having the power to do the work He wants me to do. I keep having His presence or fellowship with Him. I'm enjoying my salvation and He is causing me to be stabilized with this willing Spirit. He's sustaining me with this willing Spirit that it's his spirit that, that he's stabilizing. The consequence is what you say. Where's the parallel? Ever seen a parallel to that? Have you seen this parallel in the New Testament? I'm comparing the New Testament spiritual life with what, Paul, what John, uh, David does in Psalm 51. I'm thinking Paul and John thoughts in comparison to David's thoughts here. Think about this. Let your spirit have his way so that I have... Uh, I have a willing spirit, that I have the joy of my salvation, this inside spiritual life. And then he says, I will teach transgressors your way. I will say things that I should say. Is there a place in the New Testament that emphasizes the work of the spirit in the believer that immediately goes to what the believer says? Ephesians 5.18 is your command, do not be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but rather be filled by the Spirit, or filled by means of the Spirit, just pneumati, Be filled by means of the Spirit, that whatever the Spirit's doing to characterize you. And then you have these results, the result participles, with the result that you speak to one another, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the result that you sing and make melody in your heart to the Lord with the results you're giving thanks to God for all things in the name of Christ giving thanks to the Father in the name of the Son for all things with the result that you're submitting one to another in the fear of Christ the results are mostly spoken results that you're able to encourage one another I think there's an interesting comparison here where David says build in me the relationship that I, that I know I'm made for, that I want to have with you, that you want me to have, and then I will have the relationship with others that you want me to have. Then I can be used by you to teach transgressors your way. If you need God to s- sustain you with a willing spirit, if you need God to bring the joy, if you need God to be working in you to make you the person that you'd like to be, that God wants you to be, that virtuous person that you could be if God would work, If you need God to do this, then it's always his grace. And you can never say my character, my virtue, my integrity is my own. You can only say God is good and I'm broken and he's faithful to me despite my brokenness. All you can say is I'm a vessel of mercy and God's grace. And that's all I really bring is God's graced me out and I'm willing to walk with him. And he's willing to pick me up when I fall and he's gracious to me. And it's really about him. And from that perspective of genuine humility, genuine integrity before God, where you're, you're aware that you're a sinner saved by grace. You can go teach transgressors his ways, but we can't do it from a position of self righteousness. We can't do it from a position of pseudo righteousness where we're saying all of you have a long way to go. And this is what happens when you get there. You can't be that way with people. And some of us in our sinful natures are primed to want to have it that way. We want to be at the top and have everybody else at the bottom and we will help them. And, and if you see it, if you see it in people, it's pretty obvious when you, when you encounter this, but the interesting thing is the person that's like this can never see it in himself unless God does work, unless God's gracious. Such a person could be a pastor. Such a person could be a Sunday school teacher or an encourager or just somebody that comes alongside and I like to deal with individuals. God uses me in other people's lives. And that broken person that's so shot through with personal sin and self-righteousness can become aware of that tendency and their sin nature and they can confess it as often as they're aware of it and they walk closely with God as He corrects them and they can be that vessel of mercy that God can use despite their inherent flaws. But the horror is such a person that never comes to that brokenness before God, that never deals with their sin, that doesn't see it. And they see themselves as the standard they're helping other people to to, to approach. Jesus Christ is the only, as we'll see next hour, Good Shepherd. He's the only exemplar. Because the others that follow him that are lesser exemplars are so far less to be an infinite degree less of an example, as much as I can be an example, it's only as we're pointing to Jesus Christ. And you want nobody between you and Christ in your perspective. So so David will then be equipped by his humility to teach transgressors God's ways, and sinners to you will turn. We have another chiastic thing, it's fun, in verse 15. I will teach, they will turn, these are the verbs, and in the middle the transgressors and sinners is definitely the comparison. You can see transgression means to step across the line to sin. Sinners, chata, the word for sin, those who sin, um, your ways and to you. These are, this is a tight inversion. What's the focus? If the focus on the chiasc thing that, that and to, to see this in your Bible, sometimes it's hard because the English translators will rearrange the order of the Hebrew sentence to match English grammar. So you won 't see that it 's inverted sometimes, but when you read it in Hebrew and you put it back in Hebrew order, that 's why I do this clunky translation is it's it 's an interlinear it 's word for word attempting to be in Hebrew sequence. But when you put it back in that Hebrew sequence, you see clearly the focus is the transgressor with God, the sinner your ways centers to you it's the sinner the with God, and when you think about that, you a sinner are with God well what Perfect righteousness has you standing next to it, and somehow it 's not being uh, it 's not being polluted by your very presence. <laughs> How is that true because of the blood of Christ, because of what God had to do in his son, it had to be only the lord jesus christ he 's the only way, and he was the one that David was trusting in who would come a thousand years later, the one that we look back two thousand years to the one that we've trusted in and we are trusting in. The work that he did on the cross is the reason why you can have this co-location of the sinner with God. But the point that he makes here is that the focus is on the sinner with God. I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners to you will turn. So David has his job. He's going to teach. The sinner has his job. He's going to turn to God. Does it have to be this way? Does God have to use broken, nasty, sinful things like David? murderer, adulterer, is God going to use him? God can use him. If he renews a steadfast spirit in him, sustains him with a steadfast spirit, if he brings the joy of his salvation back, if he lets him have his Holy Spirit and retain that uh, ministry for his kingly service, if he stays in his presence, yeah, David can be used this way despite his brokenness. We're no angels, fallen or elect. We're believers in Christ who are awaiting our resurrection, which is the fullness of redemption, the fullness of what we already have, which is our salvation. What I'm trying to say is, you still have a sinful nature. David's exhibiting this in the psalm. And how do sinful people that are saved by grace proceed with humility, with a brokenness before God, with an honesty? Now, I like to say people will see your honesty, right? They'll see the person, they'll they'll understand. People get taken in by charlatans and liars constantly. All you have to do to really sell something is to tell people that it's the best. And you have to say it forcefully and with conviction. And they'll believe you because you told them. And it's just how people want to believe. They're, they're, They're easily led. So I want to say that your genuineness is going to cut through and people are going to see that. Sometimes it will but not without God's grace, not without God's work in the situation. So let's be his instrument. As David says, this is what I'll do if you'll clean me up. In verse uh, 14, deliver me from blood guilt, O God, God of my salvation. My tongue will jubilantly sing of your righteousness. And so this is if this is the, the arrangement, verse 14, deliver me from blood guilt, that's what God needs to do, my tongue will sing, that's what I'll do. So God, again, it's back to that first thing, God it's your character and my brokenness, we'll put these together and you'll win and I'll be a vessel of your mercy. Deliver me from this sin, God of my salvation, and my tongue will jubilantly sing of your righteousness. So if you can make me fit, I will be about your work. you become the message in a sense not that people will need to believe in you but that you have experienced this i am in desperate need of a savior every day of my life even this day as i'm talking to you about the savior and that's how we approach the unbeliever that's how you talk to sinners david said you tell them the truth i'm not saying you have to go recount all your sins to unbelievers i'm saying We're in the same boat here. We have the same problem. And my problem that I need a savior is the same as your problem that you need a savior. And the difference is that I have the savior because I'm trusted in him. And will you consider the God that, that sent his son to die for you? God in the flesh of man dying on the cross for your sins, to pay for your sins. Oh Lord, my lips open and my mouth will utter your praise. God has to bring even the ability to speak. To utter his praise. I think this might be um, my second favorite verse in the whole thing after Created Me a Clean Heart. When he says, Open my lips and my mouth will utter your praise. When we become aware of the, the richness of God's character, of the infinite glory of his perfect righteousness, when we really start to think about Isaiah seeing glo- the glorious manifestation of God on the throne and falling on his face in shame at his own sin. Seeing that differential. He wasn't aware of his sin. He's just casual with with his speech. And he sees perfect righteousness portrayed on the throne of God in this vision. And he says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I've seen the Holy One. I'm a man. But he immediately starts (laughs) confessing his sins. If we get this sense of God's righteousness, then when we go to sing hallelujah, praise the Lord, when we go to Praise Him and praise Him and praise Him and sing His praises and magnify His glory and all that happens in worship that is designed to exalt God. I lift you up, O God, and I sing your praises. Who are we to do that with our brokenness and our dirty mouths to utter His praises? But this is the beauty. God opens your mouth to do it. He's given you breath in your life for that purpose. He's put his Holy Spirit in your heart to make your body the temple of the Spirit of God. You can praise him and be clean despite your sin. It's amazing. Not while you're in sin, but having sinned and been cleansed from it. How do you get cleansed from sin? Throughout the scriptures, it is to state the case to God I did it. To name it to God, to confess I am guilty. That's what David did. You can check it out in 2 Samuel chapter 12. After Nathan the prophet brings him the message and he applies it to him and says, you're the man. Immediately, David said, I've sinned. Immediately, Nathan says, you're forgiven. God, you will not die. It's it's very dramatic how those two always go together. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness is the way John hits on this theme that goes through all the scriptures including Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And now we get to the part Jack and I have been talking about we want to really drive into. For you have not delighted in sacrifice and offering. In whole burnt offering, you have not taken pleasure. You have not delighted in sacrifice or I would would give it. In whole burnt offering, you have not taken pleasure. God doesn't want the rituals. He wants the reality. And that's a good place to close down. We'll pick it up next time. But I want to remind you that this is a real relationship with a real person, a real personal being. People struggle with uh, the nature of prayer in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5 says that you're supposed to give thanks to the Father at all times in the name of the Son. Giving thanks to the Father at all times in the name of the Son. And we do have one God who exists eternally in three persons, but I contend if you watch the Bible closely... And the overwhelming majority of prayers are to the Father in the name of the Son and the power of the Spirit. Overwhelming majority of prayers. Our Father, we come to you, the personal God, with need. We thank you for the privilege of assembling together, opening our hearts to your word and seeing the way David's character demonstrates a man after God's own heart, even in failure, even after coming to himself, even after confession of sin. Father, we don't want to wallow in our sin and we don't want to be ineffective in your service because of sin or its consequences in our guilt. We want you to clean us up and set our feet on a solid rock so that we can proclaim your goodness with lips that you open, just as David prayed, so we do. Father, in Jesus' name, amen.